That's an awesome thing to sing. Don't you love singing that? Oh, conquering king, conquer my heart. I love singing that. It's hyperactive when I was a kid. I'm all calm now. But when I was a kid, I was hyperactive, so my dad kept me really, really busy all the time. Um, in the summertime, he was a school teacher and a pastor and did a lot of hospital calling, and so he always would take me on his hospital because we did a lot of things together. We, we would go down the river and sink cans. One of the things we did, my dad was always looking for stuff to do that was cheap, and if you're an environmentalist, you will not like the story I'm about to tell you. But what we would go down to the river, and people would dump stuff down by the river. We lived in this really cool place where people dump stuff down by the river. And we would get our BB gun, and, and we had a BB gun, and, and Dad would we'd go down by the river, and, and we would, there would be cans laying there and you, bottles and stuff. You'd throw them in the river, and then they float down the river, and you would use them for target practice until they sank. And we did that for hours. Austin, it's good to have you here today. He's smiling over there because I put a gun illustration in my message just for my son-in-law over there. And uh, so we had fun with the BB guns, making cans sink. That's what we did. But my dad also would take me to the hospital all the time. When he would hospital calls, and I wasn't allowed to go up in the room, so I was supposed to sit in the lobby. My dad wanted to keep me busy, so he would give me gospel tracts, and I was supposed to arrange these gospel tracts and keep them stocked in the, in the, uh, in the, lo- in the lobby of the hospital. He had this one gospel track, I remember, and it always it had this confusing title. Here's the title to the gospel track. A, a good man lost and a bad man saved. Huh. I remember as a kid thinking, I was hyper, so I didn't read it. <laughs> Just the cover, you know. And if it was short, I would read it. And now that I've grown up, I read in little spurts. I do things in little spurts. That's the way we active types do. But I never, I never read this as a kid, but here's what it was about. It was a tract by this old evangelist named John R. Rice about a good man in the Bible who didn't go to heaven and a bad man in the Bible who did go to heaven. Do you believe it's possible for a good man to be lost and a bad man to be saved? Seriously, you believe that? You believe it's possible for a good man to be lost and a bad man to be saved? Because if you believe that way, you might want to give yourself a gold star because most people, even that go to church, don't believe that. They don't. And today in our text, it's in Matthew chapter 12, we have a a couple of, uh, we have a story that Jesus told. It's a chilling story. And then we have a little incident when Jesus makes a shocking statement. That's why I call the message a chilling story and a shocking statement. Jesus was always doing this kind of thing. Telling stories that captured people's imagination and conveyed truth and making statements that didn't seem right. He did that on this one. He says something about his mother in this one. I was going to call this message "Demons and Your Mother," but I didn't want you get—I didn't want to get a bunch of emails over that. So I should have. You're laughing, so we could have got away with that, I suppose. So consider this message called "Demons and Your Mother." Jesus is talking about demons and his mother and his brothers, and so that's interesting. And it really comes back down to all of this about: Is it possible 
for a good man to be lost, a good woman to be lost, and a bad person to be saved, if we get this, we've got something that will do our souls great good. If we get this idea, and this is why I'm talking about this today, if we get this idea, we've got, you have got something in your heart and in your mind and in your thinking and in your working theology which will be a great freedom and a great help to your family. A lot of families are on kind of the guilt-shame track. And they call it religion. You know, we go to church so they can tell you all the stuff that you should feel guilty and ashamed of. And next week, go home and try harder. And when they're little, you know, we're going to spank you if you don't. It's like uh, control and guilt and shame. And then we use the name of God to help us. That's kind of what religion is like for a lot of people. It's a lot of guilt, shame, and control. It's kind of... um. Shame on crack, if you will. It's just bad. And we're going to see that when Jesus talked about truth, it was significantly different than that. It wasn't, a, it wasn't about moral reformation. And so when, a, when you get this idea, it'll, it'll set you free. It, when you get this idea clear in your mind, it'll set you free. It'll be good for you. It'll be great for your family to, be, to understand what the Bible really does teach about what true, true religion really is and get off the guilt and shame track forever and get on the grace track forever. And then it will be what our area needs, what this great region needs and all these wonderful, precious people who are treasures to God, who live all around us. This is the one thing most of them do not understand. When they drive by our pretty building, what they think is, oh, I know what that are Baptist people. They're like, you know, most religion is lots of rules. Baptists are lots of rules and lots of rules on top of rules. That's what a lot of people think about Baptists. I'm, I'm Baptist, so don't look at me funny. All right? Don't, don't get upset. But it's true. That's the way a lot of people think of, like, oh, I, religion is... Guilt and shame on steroids. And Baptists are even worse. That's kind of how they look at it. So when we get the truth of what Jesus teaches in this clear in our minds, clear in our hearts, clear in our families, clear in our church, it's like we're going to be dealing ice-cold, refreshing pure, sweet water to thirsty people over and over again because people out there are burdened with guilt and shame and remorse and regret for stuff that's in their lives. And, you know, one of the reasons why they don't come in here in bigger numbers is because they just think they're going to get browbeat about that. That's what they think. And so we got to get this right. And, 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 and the best way to get it right is just to look at what Jesus said and teach what Jesus said. So you have here in this text, it's Matthew chapter 12, and today we look at verses 43 through 50, and again you have this chilling story in verses 43 through 45, and then you have this shocking incident, this shocking incident followed by a shocking statement in verses 46 through 50. On the surface they're a little mysterious, let's just jump into this, and I want to read to you just the first section right now. From Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45. This is Jesus talking, and he says something like, uh, kind of chilling, kind of spooky here, okay? He goes like this. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man. When you're a public speaker, there are certain things you say that make everybody really quiet. And this would be one (laughs) that would make people quiet. If Jesus says, when a demon goes out of a person, you're like... 
Are you seriously talking about demons here? This is what he's saying. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Jesus is telling a little parable here. Then he goes and he takes it with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. There's, a, there's an interesting story. The last state of that man is worse than the first. Okay, what's the story? When an unclean spirit, it's another name for a demon, wicked demon, goes out of a man, goes and wanders in desolate places, and then he comes back and he brings back seven, well, now you got eight wicked spirits, even more wicked than himself, in the house that's been cleaned out. And it says, the last state of the man is worse than the first. What did he mean by that? Get a little hint if you read the rest of it. It's another little phrase that says, so shall it be with this wicked generation. So Jesus said, this wicked generation, you people, he said, you people, that's the way it's going to be with you. Now, this generation thing, he mentioned it before, right? Three times before. He's talking about a generation. Remember last weekend, by the way, that's the program, come every single week. Don't miss a single week. You miss a chunk. It's bad. You're going to, you know, it's like, it's like algebra. Well, it's a lot better than algebra. <laughs> but it's like, it's incremental, you know. In other words, you miss a couple weeks, and you're like, what's he talking about? So, can I just say, come to church every week. Every week. Not every other week, every third week, but come every week. It's a great habit, and you need it, and, uh, and you, you don't miss things. So, like last week I was talking about this. It, it is fascinating because... Again, this is the, the, the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus in a little cluster, remember? And, and they said to him, show us a sign. After he already told them that they were toast, <laughs> they, because they called him, they said he cast out demons by the power of demons, which is something you really don't want to say to Jesus, right? And then they come, show us a sign. After Jesus condemns them, show us a sign. <laughs> and he tells them, I'm going to show you the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he tells them the men of Nineveh are going to rise in judgment against them because they repented. At the preaching of Jonah, is what he says. And then he says, and the queen of the south, queen of Sheba, will rise in judgment because she came a long distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He says, because you didn't repent, because you don't want to hear wisdom, you're condemned. And in every case, he said, this generation, this generation, this generation. Three times in those passages, he talked about this generation. Now he tells this little story about the demon going out and the eight demons coming back. And he says, that's what this generation is going to be like. In other words... If you have your moral reformation program and your rules and your regulations and your, your religious policies and manuals, and that is the sum total of your religion, and you reject me, it's like cleaning up a house. And if I don't go into that house, then the demons are going to come back and it's going to be worse at the, at the end than it was at the beginning. And Jesus is giving this chilling story to warn them about what happens when they're on the moral reformation program, the guilt and shame program, instead of the grace program. So he's telling them, let's talk a little bit about, demon, about demons first. You learn a little bit. You don't want to 
force a story too much. You want, the story, you want to understand why did Jesus tell the story, why did Matthew put the story Jesus told in here, and that's the main thing that you want to get out of it. You don't want to milk out of a story theology that's not supposed to be there. So we want to be careful about doing that. But just by looking at the story, you see some things about demons that it might be good for us to know. I wonder how many of you here believe in the devil, and you believe in demons? A political candidate? They, did you, you know how they dredge through a, 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 a politician's past in order to dig out like shameful things that will make people reject them? Well, he did this with one of the political candidates. You may have noticed he believed in the devil. Did you notice that? He believed in Satan. And they, got, they, they went back into his past and they found a place where he was speaking at a religious institution and he said he believed in Satan. This, this, this political candidate, he said he believed in Satan. They got it on a tape, on an old tape. They, that he, he says he believed in Satan and that Satan's behind a lot of stuff in the world. And he said, this political candidate said, that he believes that Satan is even behind a lot of stuff that happens in churches. What a scandal! What a scandal! I, of course, I'm being facetious. I think I believe that. Yeah, if you believe the Bible and you believe the Jesus of the Bible, then you better believe that too. And so we might want to know about the devil, since he's pretty actively at work, and one of the things he does is to try to make people think he's not at work. So let's learn a little bit about the devil from the story. There are some things we learned. First, an unclean spirit is a name for a demon, and, you, and they're filthy and vile and wicked, and you just get that from that little short story right there. Think, don't think of Satan as a comic book character, and don't think of demons as comic book characters. We're talking here about... Spirit beings that are vile and filthy and evil and determined to interfere with what God is doing and damage and harm you and take you to hell if they can. So you've never seen a movie with a, with an, a bad person as bad as what Satan and demons really are. So we don't want to make that a comic book kind of a thing. An unclean spirit is a name for a demon, filthy and vile, as it says here. Some demons are worse than others. We know this from the story, right? Because he went and got worse demons than himself. It's like, you think I'm bad? I'm coming back with badder people than me. And then demons seek hosts in human beings. We know this from the Bible. We see it here. Demons want to seek hosts in human beings. They want to possess unbelievers and oppress believers. And they influence believers and unbelievers alike. I want to go over some truth about demons here. Demons are evil, unclean spirits, according to the Bible. Fallen angels, servants of Satan. There's only one devil, but there are myriads of demons that serve the devil and make his power practically universal. A, de- a demoniac, like the one that meant the Bible mentions earlier in Matthew, we talked about the Gadarene demoniac, the demon-possessed guy from the region of uh, Gadara. A demoniac is a person whose personality has been invaded by one or more demons who, who can, the demons can speak and act through the human victim, deranging both his mind and body. Sometimes people say, I, I, you know, I saw a ghost. You might have seen something. It wasn't a person. It was demon. A number of such victims of Satan were delivered by Jesus Christ in his ministry. And so Jesus kind of shows his unhindered power of God working through the sinless humanity of Christ on earth. And Jesus challenges the supernatural world. And as a result of that, that, that there's an evil kind of outburst of demonism during the earthly ministry of Jesus because he's just challenging the evil world. You see that over and over as you go through these Gospels. And, and then the, the reality of the personality of demons are attested throughout all eras of history. Throughout the Bible, 
Demons can derange mind and body. They know the deity of Jesus. They're smarter than liberal pastors. They know the lordship of Christ. You missed that one. Their theology is better than a lot of pastors. Yeah. Um, you got you ever hear pastors? I heard one the other day just trying to explain away everything. Explain away heaven, explain away hell. I'm like, well, we know whose side you're on, right? I mean, this guy's sharp. He's a nice guy. He's interesting. He's, t- he's talented. He's gifted. He's, he's, a, sh- he's a sharp guy. <laughs> I'm not being mean. I'm a correspondent with him. He ain't on our side, though. Because his theology isn't as good as demons. Demons know that Jesus is God. Ge- demons understand the lordship of Christ. They understand their predestined fate as well, according to the Bible. They have a conspicuous role in the government of the satanic world system. I didn't say they have a conspicuous role in the government, although it would never surprise me, right? Right? We know that the devil messes up churches. So it wouldn't surprise you, would it, if he messes up governments? But that's what I'm saying when I say government. I'm saying demons have a conspicuous role in the government of the satanic world. You can see that in, back in Daniel. You don't see much of this in the Bible, but what you do see is like, whoa. You know, the prince of Persia thing, Ephesians chapter 6, the principalities and powers, so forth. Demons can promote cults and false doctrine. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So they're in the religion. They can be in the religion. You get that? Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It sounds like these demons are into rules. Interesting. Oh, that's a trick, isn't it? That's tricky. You think the more rules, the better. Like, no, the demons, that's the demon program. <laughs> I knew you were going to be quiet when I said that. You know? so I, that's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this. They oppose God's program and God's people. They hate God, hate God's program, hate the church, hate God's people. And they, they work. Dem, uh, demons are angels that sinned and are fallen. Wayne Grudem says, we may define demons as follows. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work, in the evil, work evil in the world. Demons are evil angels. This means that demons are created spiritual beings with moral judgment, high intelligence, without physical bodies. It also means like holy angels are powerful. Demons have sinned against God, Second Peter 2 and verse 4. Demons continually work evil in the world, and there's much of that. Generating false teaching, promoting immorality, also disturbing some of the unregenerate by means of possession, and the regenerate by means of oppression. Demons are described as wicked in the Bible, as unclean, as evil, and their final judgment is certain. And so repeating myself again, demons promote false teaching, they promote immorality, they promote anger, wrath, and rage. And remember this, they're behind false religion. They're behind false religion. No false religion in a vacuum, they're behind that. Some of what demons do looks really dark and bad and vile and perverse. And you're like, okay, that's the devil right there. I mean, you can see it. Certain, you know, I mean, our, our culture makes money on this producing movies and books that have demonic themes that Christians should have nothing to do with. 
It's dark and vile and wicked and perverse. That's not something that believers should have a fascination with, and that's not something that they should dabble with. Folks, it's black and white. Whose side are you on? Make up your mind. Don't fool around with that kind of stuff. Movies and books and things like that that are, that are demonic. That's not something Christians should have anything to do with. That's the dark side. It's the other side. But understand this. Some of what demons do looks really good, and it looks really nice, and it looks really light, and it looks really religious, and it looks really moral, and it is moral. A lot of what the devil does looks moral. Moral. Comes a young man down the street, homeschooled, uh, don't drink, they don't party, they're not immoral, they come from a large family, they eat whole wheat bread. Yeah, kind of guy you want to marry your daughter. Yeah. Clean, respectful, right? They volunteer a couple years of their life to serve their church. Right? Before they go to college. Oh, but did I mention they're in a demonic, Christ-denying cult that rejects the teaching of the Bible. But it looks good. That's why the Bible says Satan himself is transformed into a minister of light, angel of light. There are places in the Holy Land that we went that were really super religious that I just want to get out of. And I would say, if you were asking me, I would say... There was demonic influence there. I'm just like, I want out of here. Well, of course, that's the way it is. This is just a little thumbnail sketch about, about demons. So what's the point of this story? And why did Jesus tell it? And why did Matthew repeat it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because religion as moral reformation is nothing more than house cleaning for the devil. Did you get it? If your religion is nothing more than moral reformation, then it's house cleaning for the devil. It's just making it... If, if your religion is nothing more than like the, what the Pharisees' religion was, was just rules on top of rules, guilt, and shame, ritual, religion, and that's all that it was, you've got you to understand that Jesus is saying that's like making a place for the devil to really move in and take a hold of you. That's shocking for a lot of you, isn't it? Because it seems like religion and moral reform are kind of one and the same. You, you, you clean up your act, and then God says, okay, I'll let you in my heaven, the old pan scale thing. But that's not what Jesus is teaching, not at all. It is not the gospel. That is not the program. That is not the message that evangel... That would not be good news. If we're going to have that message, we should change our church's name to Bad News Baptist Church. Bad news! It's worse than you thought! You are so... Oh, you're toast. Yeah, you're bad. You are bad. It's like people pretty much are aware of that. They're bad. They need to hear the rest of the story. They need to hear the refrain of the song. They need to know about the work of Jesus, the Calvary and the cross and grace. They know that they're guilty. They know that they have violated God's ways. We may, we may help them understand by the teaching of the law so that they can kind of connect the dots. But then we follow with the gospel. That is the good news. And so moral reformation is not good news for anybody. 
And it's possible to reform, turn over a new leaf, stop doing some bad things and have a measure of that. That goes well with Satan's program. If that's all you've got, you could be sitting in this church which is devoted to the gospel and never hear it. You know, you put the certain glasses on, there's certain things you just don't see and all you really hear is that, that religion, morality, peace. And that's not what Jesus was saying. So that's why Jesus told this story. Don't get the idea that you can clean up through moral reformation and escape the control of the devil because you cannot. It's like if I, Jesus is like, if I don't move in that house, demons are coming back in the house. That's what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus earlier had cast out demons. They said, you cast out demons by the power of demons. And he said, you have to, if you're going to bind a strong man, if you're going to spoil a house, you've got to bind the strong man first. And he comes back and he tells the story here. That's why he tells the story so, Reformation, rules, false religion, ritual. The publican had that, but he prayed to himself. Remember what the Bible says? That John Rice's little tract I was telling about at the beginning of my message, a good man lost and a bad man saved, was about the publican and the sinner. Remember the publican? He goes down to the tell, he's praying to himself, the Bible says. And the publican, a sinner, he's a God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says, would you listen to me right now? The Bible says he went down to his house justified that day. That's an awesome story in the Bible. It helps us to realize justification can happen in a moment, in an instant, by relationship with Jesus Christ. Justification by faith. Listen, I have a challenge for every one of you. Find where the Bible teaches justification by grace through faith alone. Memorize it. So when the devil starts to bother you with this whole morality thing, you can quote the Bible to him. It's amazing to me how many people who say they're Christians are still confused about this. Is this a moral reformation program or something else? So we know what it's not. We know it's not a moral reformation program. That's why Matthew tells the story. It's not enough to purge evil. It must be replaced by a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not enough to clean up your act. Salvation doesn't depend on your morality. There will be men and women who are morally decent people, and it's sad to say it, but they're, lo- they're lost and will be lost. There are men and women who are, who are not good, moral, decent people who understand Jesus' sacrifice of his life for them and they come guilty and shamed and broken and they throw themselves on the Lord and they don't have moral goodness to bring. They just have sin to bring. And when they bring it to him, he has moral goodness. It's a message a lot of people just don't get. That's our job. It's not just my job to say it right here. You're with those people out there that are precious to God. You listen to them. You know they say stuff that's wrong, and it's your job in an artful and sweet and kind and loving, wonderful way, to, or sometimes in a prophetic way, however God directs you to it. Get the truth of those people. Think about this. Without Christ, moral reformation just creates a dangerous spiritual vacuum. That's what, the, that's what the story is telling. Religion or Christianity as moral reformation is dangerous because what it does is it insulates people kind of against the truth of the gospel. It inoculates them to the gospel. And, and so if people can feel like they can be saved by 
good deeds, they can be right with God by good deeds, then they, they're into self-righteousness. And a self-righteous person becomes a victim of Satan in a much more dangerous way than an immoral person becomes a victim of Satan. That's why Jesus is so hard on them. Self-righteousness is a serious danger. It's worse than immorality. Immorality is bad. Very bad. Over-immorality is very bad. But people who are overtly immoral normally understand that they are. But people who are self-righteous are deceived in a very bad way. You don't want that to happen to you. That is why Jesus tells this story and he teaches in so many wonderful different ways. So a self-righteous person becomes a victim of Satan in a much more dangerous way than an overtly immoral person does. It's better for people to be overwhelmed with their sin than to be over-impressed with their own righteousness. It was the moral who plotted against Jesus and plotted his death and blasphemed his name. It was moral religious people who did that. Satan doesn't mind moral reformation at all. It works well with his program. So if he gets somebody into kind of some horrifying, kind of horror movie of a life of demonic, vile darkness, well, that's fine with him. Or if he can get them kind of sucked into a kind of something that looks really light and and religious and good, but he still has them on the way to hell, that's fine with him. He doesn't care. Whatever works for him is what he does. Now, this is not only true in the lives of individuals, but it's true in the lives of churches and in organizations. It's possible for Satan to get a foothold in somebody's life, a foothold in a church, a foothold like that. Now, this is true because when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees later, and we'll get to it in Matthew 23, Jesus says something really shocking to them. You kind of, when you read the Bible, you, you end up admiring Jesus a lot. Now, if, you, if you watch movies, you, you may not. You know, if you watch movies about Jesus, you, you may not admire him. You, you may not like him, but if you read the Bible about Jesus, it's like, oh my goodness, so we ought to make a movie like that. Jesus says, you Pharisees are like missionary in your zeal. You go around the world to make a convert, and then when you make a convert, he's twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. <laughs> That's a great quote for the coffee cup, isn't it? You, know, you, go, you go around the world in your missionary zeal, but when you convert somebody, they're twofold more a child of hell. What in the world? That's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? That's kind of high octane preaching. He's saying when you make converts to your moral reformation system, then the devil really has them. That's what he's saying. This is good for us to understand. Hey, I've got to move to the second one really fast, don't I? i got stuff that I... Let's jump into the second one there and look at that. Verse 46. This is... So we just talked about the, the chilling story. Now let's talk about the shocking statement. It, while he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brother stood outside speak, seeking to speak with him. Stop. Okay, what do you do when your mom and your brothers you haven't seen him for a while and they're staying outside and talking about like, time out. My mother's here. Wouldn't you? What if your mother was saying, oh, you know... You're getting yourself in trouble. They're plotting against you. They want to kill you. Some of them think you're deranged. Maybe we should talk. We don't really know what she was doing for sure, but we know that his brothers did not initially believe. And so, you know, Mary certainly had greater knowledge, and yet the Bible says she needed a Savior. And what Jesus saw that she needed and, her, and the brothers needed more than him going out to let them perhaps talk him out of what he was doing or whatever it was, bring him lunch. 
He says something shocking. I mean, just something you do not expect Jesus to say. This is a couple of times, but here it says, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. It was a shocking statement, wasn't it? I'll tell you who's close to me. My disciples, the ones... It says right here in verse 50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now catch this. Here's what's going on. Pharisees are going, We are Jews. We are religious. Get on our program. Jesus is saying, No, your program is wrong. It's more reformation. It's going to end badly. Demons are going to come in. And it's not going to help that you're Jewish. If you were really careful in your reading of the Old Testament, Jewish guys, you would have realized that the purpose of God blessing Jewish guys and gals was so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world, which is full of Gentiles. But that's the part you missed. And so all the time Jesus is bringing up these stories about Gentiles who believe. It's kind of in your face. Over and over, Jesus is always in your face with these stories about Gentiles who believe. Unlikely people who believe. And here you are, you're just a religious guy that's in control of all the religion, and you, and you don't believe. And so here you have, uh, here you have an interesting uh, incident here in the Bible where Jesus is saying to them, I'll tell you the people who are close to me, they're not the people who were born Jews. The people that were close to me are not the people who were born Jews. The people that are close to me are not the people who, are, who got all the religious attire. The people that are close to me, they're not the people who have all the rules. And the people that are close to me are not even my mother and my brothers. The people that are close to me are the ones who do the will of my father. That was a shocking statement. It was a wonderful statement, too, if you think about the potential of the statement. But this is what he's saying. So, so it's interesting here to see, if you think about this, um, that Jesus is saying, if you want to be close to me, do the will of my Father. Well, what's the will of the Father? Quickly, listen to this. Suddenly a voice comes from heaven in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. God is saying about Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What I'm going to say here is that God's will is that you believe in his son and receive his son and believe what he says about his son. That's the whole idea here of Matthew. And I can give you another example. Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him. Suddenly a voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. It sounds like baptism, transfiguration. Matthew 18, the Son of Man came to save that which was lost. That's God's program, to send His Son to save. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, the Lord isn't slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but He's long-suffering and He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That is an amazing statement. In 1 Timothy 2 and 4, it says something similar about God. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, it says, Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. I want to submit to you a couple of things. The will of my Father in heaven above every other thing is this. The will of God above every other thing is that you would receive His Son for who He is, that you would believe in Jesus for who He is, that He would be the one who delivers you from your sin. Not your religion, not your works, not your church going, not your confirmation, not your baptism, not your religious garb. None of that. None of that. But that your 
faith is totally in the work of Jesus Christ, that He was perfect, that He's God, that He died, was buried, and that He rose again. This is the will of the Father that we receive the Son. That's the whole point of the book of Matthew. And that's why I'm telling you today, it's, it's not just like for 2,000 years ago, it's you now. What is the most important thing in the world you can do? Believe, believe who Jesus is, receive Him, and tell the people. Let them know, set them free, that's what they need. Now, so, so think about it, here we go. This is kind of a synopsis, okay? Three things. One, there is a warning here against moral reformation. I'm sure you got that, right? There's a warning against religion as moral reformation. It's just a, nothing more than trying harder to be good, and then God receives you because you were good. There's a warning, a stern warning, in the form of a really interesting, chilling, cool story by Jesus about demons. Second, there's a warning against assuming a relationship with God you don't have. He's like, say, don't tell me you're in a relationship with me if you rejected me. Don't tell me your relationship with God if you rejected me, that's what he's saying. But you see, in verse 50, there's something more. There's an offer of spiritual transformation, not moral reformation initially, but spiritual transformation, which is, includes moral reformation, but it's better. Spiritual transformation is like inside out. This is what Jesus is offering. Verse 50, notice, don't miss this. What does verse 50 say? Read it carefully. Whoever, whoever, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. He's not, you're just not close to me if you're Jewish. You're just not close to me if you're Pharisee. You're just not close to me if you're my mother or my brother. Whoever wants in to the true program of spiritual transformation through me can be as close to me as is possible to get. All the time, true religion is given by, is taught and preached and written about by God and by true preachers as relationship, as fellowship, as intimacy. That's important. Get it. Get that. It's not, not a, not a, Lois and I, we, we want to go on a trip for our anniversary. So it was a, a while ago, a few years ago, and we were married in the fall of the year, and so I always thought that was a good plan, get married in the fall of the year, and that way whenever you have your anniversary, you get to do special things in the most beautiful time of the year. And so we were trying to decide where to go, and we weren't really sure, and we ran this kind of really, really super busy ministry. We lived on the premises, and so you just really wanted to get away. Fall of the year, we, we were talking back and forth, and Lois and I have this thing where, you know, she will say, I don't care where we go. Does your wife do this to you? Sucks you into that? I don't care where we go. And you're like, really? Let's just go to Burger King? Just have a great time, you know? You know or, you know, she'll say, I don't care where you go, but they care. If a woman tells you she doesn't care where she goes, she's lying to you. You know, that's just not true. She, she, she's like, well, well, I don't know. But we didn't really know where to go for sure. We had some ideas, and I, I said, let's go north because it's more likely. It's early in September. Our anniversary is early in September. And I thought it would be more likely that it would be colorful up north. So I said, let's go somewhere north maybe. And we, we didn't know for sure. We just got our stuff. We put it in the car, and we drove away. And we're just kind of talking, and I'm doing that finesse. You know, I've been married for 30 years, so I'm pretty sharp now, you know. So I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not committing to anything. I'm just like, I don't know, sweetheart, what are you? I don't care. Just, you know, being with you is just my entire life. I don't want to do anything else. I have no other desires and, and something to that effect. And so we ended up going to Burger King. And, um, but we went in ca- to Canada. You remember this? We went to Burger King. Normally you don't confirm these things, you know, but this is good, sir. You're nodding. Um, so we, we go across this uh, poor here on Sarnia and across Ontario into Canada, and we, and we did st- stuff at Burger King because uh, they had Wi-Fi, and we wanted to get in touch with the kids. You know how that works. So we're having a nice brunch at Burger King, and then we went across this place called Niagara on the Lake. I'd heard about it before. You liked that, yeah? 
So I thought about, I heard about this, and they said it's a, it's a beautiful little village where flowers are growing by the road, and there's just a beautiful place. I thought, well, it'd be a nice place to be romantic. So we went to Niagara on the lake, and we just walked along holding hands, and Lois taking pictures, and there's a little, cool little independent bookstore there, and there's a quaint little shops, and it's just beautiful, romantic place. Horse-drawn carriages out in the street. It was a perfect day. Sun was out, but it was just kind of cool. And the other day, I don't know why, but it just came back to my mind again. What a happy day that was. And then we drove down the river, nice and slow, nothing to do. Drove down the river into Niagara Falls on the Canadian side, and we watched that beautiful spectacle of God's creation. And I was just thinking, that was a cool day. It was a happy day. I'm glad we did it. It's something inexplicable, unbelievable, that you can't write down about a relationship, about a person with a personality and a history with you and shared experiences when they've forgiven you things and they love you still. It's just something so sweet. Jesus wants you to be in a relationship with him. He will forgive you of your sin. He will show you the most beautiful things in the world. You can't put that in a book. You can't make a list of rules that will force that to happen. That can't be generated by a desk manual or a series of policies. That's a hard thing. feeling heavy-hearted this morning because... Roger Schwab isn't with us. I mean, he's not with us in church, and he's not with us on earth. He died on Wednesday night. And uh, it just happened so fast. It's like he, he died, and he was only 66, and, and he, uh, we know he had things he wanted to do. He was planning to do. He wasn't planning on dying at 66. And the, the second I heard about it, it just made me feel so sad. I drove out there thinking there were things we were going to do. And if that's true about me and him, that's true about his wife, his boy, his girl, his grandkids. Just so much stuff left undone, unfinished. So yesterday at the funeral, his son John got up to speak. And I'll tell you, that doesn't usually work well because people are so wrung out with grief, they're not really very good at that. Sometimes they're just hurt. They're not very good at it. So a pastor always kind of holds his breath like, I hope this goes okay. But John spoke poetry yesterday. Poetry. Beautiful. And he had a list of things his dad taught him. It made me so want to go home and be with my kids. I can try to tell you the list of things his dad taught him, just sweet things his dad taught him in a relationship. Taught him how to fix things. And taught him what was good and right and what was wrong. and Taught him how to do things. and Gave him money when he didn't need it. and Called him when he didn't have to. He just went through a list of things like that. And then in a beautiful and poetic way, when he got to the end, he said, the one thing he didn't teach me how to do was live without him. And until he said that, I didn't know what I was going to say because there had already been so many good things said. But when he said that, I thought, I know what to tell him now because that's where the things of the Lord come in. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And the Lord helps us. But as soon as I 
took care of things. I, I went home to be with my family. I hold my new granddaughter, spend time with my son-in-law, listen to his stories, police work, be with my kids. Because there's nothing like a relationship. You can't put it in a manual. You can't make a series of rules that creates a relationship. It doesn't work like that. Jesus wants you to know that. He's willing to draw you into an eternal fellowship with himself, an eternal relationship with himself. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will guide you and provide for you. Would you allow Jesus to draw you into a relationship with himself? You can be as close to Jesus as he was with his mother and his brothers. Let's pray together. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask if there's... There are some here who would like to indicate by lifting up your hand that you, you need spiritual counsel and help. And from this point on, we'll let you initiate that. But I just would like to know if there are those of you here today that would just like to say, nah, I, really, I, could, I need you to pray for me and I need to talk to somebody. Raise up your hand right now and we'll keep you in our, mind, our hearts and prayers. Yes. Anybody else? We're kind of spread out. So if you put your hand up, put it up again and hold up just for a second. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Pastor Pine is going to come and lead us in a closing song, and then, and then we'll be on our way today. Father, we look forward tonight, uh, look forward to it all month, to a time we come to tonight when we have our communion service. And we're reminded in our hearts of why you're so precious to us, that you died for us. We're sinners, we're guilty, we're full of shame and regret and remorse. And we try and when we, we try and we try and we, we, can't, we can't even do better on our own. And when we can, it isn't enough. And so when we read these stories and these statements that you made, they're like, they're so refreshing to us. We're so grateful. Lord, I pray for those who lifted their hands and maybe for those who could have, Help us, I pray, to take those steps toward your arms and toward fellowship with you. Some across the threshold of faith by being saved, some into obedience in baptism, whatever it is that you're telling them to do, and some in a deeper consecration than ever before, some in just a faithful and regular obedience and attendance in church, or whatever it is that you're doing, I pray, God, that you would do it even now in this quietness, I pray. Amen.